Well, look, I mean, you know, Budweiser, Pepsi, Mondelez, GE, Diageo, these are now five to eight year, year relationships at Vayner. I think that people with any level of business common sense realize these big companies are not enamored by my charisma on Twitter. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Gary, uh, you're probably the best example I can think of. I was thinking about this as, as, as we were coming in, of someone who's used content marketing to create a personal brand and from that create a business. Yes. And I think what's really interesting, we're, we're even seeing it as we're recording this today, is you've sort of evolved to the point where it's not about planning for your content marketing. You've, you, you talk about documenting. Yes. Creating yes. moments all the time. That's and right. And just naturally recording. How did you get to that point? Practice. You know, it's funny when you, you open that sentence, it's really interesting because I built a business in my 20s, a wine business, that later I layered you know, content with Wine Library TV in 2006 on YouTube. And then to your point, that was almost like the baton being passed to me going into content creation as it segued from wine into business. And off of the business content, I started one of the largest marketing agencies in the world, right? Independent. Um, and so I just think practice. You know, I'm now 13 years into producing content. And for the first five and a half years, I produced a wine show every single weekday. Then I took a little bit of a gap to establish Vayner Media. And then DRock, you started when? 2014? And then from 2014 until now, for the last five years, you know, I've been pretty much producing content almost every day, whether Ask Gary Vee, a vlog, and over the last year or so have just built out an incredible machine of content, hundreds of pieces of content, you know, potentially a day sometimes if you count individual tweets and things of that nature. And so I think it was an evolution of understanding that you can't be overexposed in such a noisy world. And so, and, you know, listen, I think there's a lot of people like me that do have a lot of things to say and have the ability to say them differently, even though they're somewhat saying the same thing. And um, so I just think it's been evolution. I remember you talking, I think on your own podcast or talking to somebody else, about you, you almost had to go through the process. We had to ask yourself, I think the word you used was, is it douchey to have yeah, a videographer the, follow myself around? That was the big moment. You know, three years ago, you know, it, when D-Rock came into my world, he was obviously coming from a YouTube video creation world, and Casey Neistat was such an icon to that community and a couple of other people. But they were vlogging first person. They were, in essence, truly directors, producers, filmmakers and something just happened you know we talked a lot about it and through self-awareness and through conversation I don't know exactly how but basically Drock's like hey I really want to make a vlog and you know the thought of walking around earth and having somebody follow you around with a camera to your point I was extremely and I'm pretty good at being able to deal with judgment but I wasn't naive that nobody was really doing it and how would my normal day-to-day people who I interact with, employees, clients, how would they deal with that variable? And so it took me time, but I knew it was going to work. I knew that 98% of my best thoughts were never heard by anybody besides the people in the room or even in my own head. And, um, and I was excited to put it out there. And the other thing about the, the, the evolution you've gone through 
it's almost the opposite of some people where you've, you've gone from being, first of all, a business owner and then to running a marketing organisation. Um, how does that sort of, I guess, filter change how you talk to clients or potential clients? You know, I think one of the things that's really worked for me is a lot of times I'm a better business operator than the people I'm talking to. You know, I'm not coming from an artistic, ideological point of view. I'm coming from a practical, organizational point of view. Um, I've also sell, in essence, things that I've already done. You know, I take enormous pride in the fact that there are very few CEOs of any marketing agency in the world that actually do the craft that they're selling. They're bankers at best. And so I think um, I think it's a very, very, very big deal, and I think it really has uh, allowed us to have a totally different perspective. We are far more results-driven in our DNA than I think a lot of communications agencies. What do you think the advertising industry, the communications industry, what do you think they think of you? How do they perceive you? You know, look, I think... I've been very aggressive in understating Vayner's scale. You know, I think maybe this can, you know, that that just passed where we won a bunch of awards and people are starting to say, wait a minute, look at all these good people that work there. You know, I think we're starting to hide a little less. But, you know, I think a far majority think I'm a blowhard and, you know, a self-promoter and you know, that there's not substance behind it. Where's the work, you know? Because we don't create a lot of propaganda around our work because we don't think that getting awards or headlines in magazines is really what we should be doing for our clients. Um, I think a lot of people don't think about us at all because we've been, as an agency, under the radar. But specifically to you, you know, I've done a really good job on LinkedIn in the last 18 months, and I think... that's where a lot of people have discovered me in our industry and in the business world in general. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm a colorful language kind of guy, and I'm, I'm definitely a Jersey boy, and I'm even American to Americans. And so I'm sure there's cynicism, curiosity, um, and I respect all those things. I'm empathetic to any observation of me because I put myself out there, and that's the cost of entry to do that. The reality and the honest truth is I enjoy being liked very much. So I don't like when people think I'm a bad guy. Uh, At the same token, these are people that are casting judgment that have never met me once in their lives. And so I have to be okay with that and recognize um, I don't get too high when somebody says I'm amazing. uh, And I don't get too low when somebody says I'm the worst. And what we're sort of on perceptions. I suppose when I, I think about myself and what I think Vayner Media might be good at, I guess I look to you're the case study, where as a leader, you've built your reputation and your brand through using all of those tools available to you, particularly content marketing. Um, and I suppose I almost, my, my automatic thought then is that's what Vayner Media will be good. If, I, if, I, if I'm a brand trying to build my leader's profile, that's what mm-hmm. I think of. What about when a brand is okay, we just want to build our brand, sell some stuff, not necessarily the personality of our leader. Do you, do you, do you feel that you've, you, you've widened and got the, the tools to do that? Well, look, I mean, you know, Budweiser, Pepsi, Mondelez, GE, Diageo, these are now five to eight year, year relationships at Vayner. I think that people 
with any level of business common sense realize these big companies are not enamored by my charisma on Twitter. These people are looking for business results. I would argue that we're an enigma in the fact that we can be perceived extremely narrow. However, I genuinely believe we build and create far bigger business results than the global creative shops that everybody puts on a pedestal that I think are selling vanilla in the form of television and matching luggage in outdoor and digital. And so, you know, I'm not too worried about how wide we're perceived by our competitors. I'm definitely concerned and passionate about how clients perceive us. We also have gone from zero to $175 million in revenue in 10 years, and we barely win any RFPs because people hand us business. There's a reason that's happening, and that is not because I'm cool or people want to give me business. It's because we're driving actual results, and I'm patient. And so I think that's a good observation by you. I think that all it takes is one meeting of a cape stack if we can just get to that. And more importantly, 10 years in, we have a lot of executives who now are, I would say that five to 10 of the CEOs or CMOs that have left and have gone to new gigs in the last five years, we've been the first or second phone call they've had. That's good. So we're growing based on internal reputation on people that actually work with us, not my personal brand's outside perception. Uh, another um, question I'd be interested to get your, your take or your, your perception of the industry. I uh, was listening to a po- podcast you recorded uh, back at Cannes in June with uh, Cindy Gallup. Yes. Uh, and she's had a lot to say around the challenges that women in the industry face, yes. diversity more generally. You obviously get to sort of see the industry in a number of different markets around the world. What's your take on what the impact of the Me Too movement has been on the media and marketing industry? Because it, it, it feels to me like, certainly in Australia, it's not had much impact. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that is interesting about the way I roll, I care so much about consumer behavior everywhere around the world. You know, I have a lot of thoughts on how TikTok is playing in Hunter Valley in Australia, but I have no idea the executive branches of Publicis or WPP or Omnicom. I just don't know. I would hope, as a human, that it's created good conversation and created opportunity. Um, But the truth is, I genuinely don't know. Um, But to your point, I think the world is filled with Twitter keyboard warriors that don't actually deliver on those actions in real life. And so I'm hopeful, but, you know, I'm just not sure. Changing tax to something you you referred to a few minutes ago. Um, You've, you've talked a bit recently about LinkedIn yes. and, and the momentum that you're getting from there. Well, why? And, and hey, we see the same thing. We get more to, to Mumbrella. We get more traffic from LinkedIn than we do from Twitter than we do from Facebook. Actually, at the moment, why is it LinkedIn's moment now? They've done a really good job over the last five to seven years creating an infrastructure that allows for content distribution that is seen within the native nature of its platform, and it's a supply and demand of attention game. The main reason LinkedIn's working right now is because 98% of people are underestimating how powerful a platform it is. And is it, do you think it's each platform has its moment? Yes, because I think it's supply and demand of attention. And you've argued that uh, that in LinkedIn, it's cheap at the moment. 
it's organically for sure. Its ad product is actually expensive because of the nature of its bottom pricing. It doesn't start at five cents like the other places do, or ten cents. Um, it starts at two dollars CPM, which allows for a lot of vulnerability of overpaying for things that are worth eighty cents. Um, but yes, it's organic reach. I mean, somebody listening right now who's a frustrated strategist, she or he can post something right now organically as a blog post with no audience in theory, and will it will be seen. And that's something that Facebook and Twitter both had moments in, in the past. Obviously, as they've grown, more people are talking to the same amount of people listening, or ad products scale um, and fill those pipes. Another difference in, in style between you and maybe other large organization leaders is, is you know, you, you, you have, a, I think, as a point of pride your level of being hands-on you've you've described yourself as both the ceo and the chief operations officer as well um I, and i i remember years ago interviewing richard branson and asking the question well what you know he was doing a lot of his dangerous stunts at the time <laughs> and sort of finding that polite way of asking what what happens after dies. you and yeah and he got there it's like well if i snuff it well and, and his argument was well it'll cost us a bit more in pr it feels that like you're a bit more intrinsic to the organization. Are you, are you a key man risk, do you think? Yes. And what does that mean for your, your, your employees? It means that if I die tomorrow, they'll get very high-paying jobs because they'll be extremely sought after for their skill set. And another question I get asked sometimes is, is, would you ever actually sell the organization? Would you ever exit? You know, it's funny. What's unique about Vayner is it's being built so I can buy other businesses and run it through the Vayner machine. So it's the most unusual thing to ever sell. But I grew up a very big WWF fan, and there was a wrestler who I hated because he was a bad guy, and, I, and Macho Man was the champion who was my guy, not Hulk Hogan, and he was a rival of him called the Million Dollar Man. And one of his favorite things to say was, everybody's got a price. And the reality is, if... Disney or the Murdochs after their News Corp sale or things of that nature, the reality is if somebody calls me tomorrow and says, you know, I think you've on the verge of building the most exciting thing ever and we need to have it and here's $3 billion, I will sell the company. So it's, of course I would sell it. It would take a price that nobody on earth is willing to pay. So I don't anticipate that. Um, and that's great because I really enjoy operating it and I know why I'm building it. I'm building it to buy IP and businesses and run it through. And what that means is I want to buy, you know, K-Swiss and I want to take 25 key employees from Boehner and now we are the executive branch of K-Swiss and I want to do that at scale and in perpetuity. So I don't expect to, um, but I do get concerned and that's the right word at times that I am building something very unique, very special and once everybody realizes it, some of the biggest organizations in the world may just want to overpay for it. I, um, I, I was listening to a, an interview you did with one of my, my colleagues, Dean Carroll, in Singapore, and you talked about your ambitions to buy potentially a heritage brand, yes. to be a brand owner. Um, how do you go from ambition to execution on something like that? By doing execution for a long time. You know, that, was, that was the singular reason Vayner was built in 2009. So how are you going to do it? I'm going to wait for the global economy to melt and I'm going to take the money I've been saving and buy something. And uh, what's your perception on the global economy? There's a few wobbles at the moment. That'd be great because I don't like client services that much. 
and I mean that. I mean, I'm enjoy- I really enjoyed this chapter. I've learned what I needed to. I've met a lot of, I mean, the marketing world is filled with incredibly good people. Um, and, you know, I really prefer for China, what happened yesterday, I, I don't know when you're going to air this, but there's been a little wobble there. Let's call it last week. By Let's the call time it last week. <laughs> last week, China had a little bit of a wobble, corrected or later that week. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would be thrilled because that would mean that I could start really getting serious about my next chapter. And I'm very committed to not overpay. And right now, the world is very frothy. And to buy a meaningful, to buy Mentos, you know, which I just had one of, it would, I would have to overpay grossly when everybody's over leveraged like they are right now and the world melts, you don't have to overpay. You underpay. And so I'll wait. I took your advice and went onto LinkedIn and asked people, what should I ask Gary Vee? Um, I thought one of the really interesting uh, questions I got from someone was um, the challenge of, this is from Matthew Moore, the challenge of finding questions for Gary Vee is that so much of his life has lived as a public performance and he's so vocal about his views that I feel like I kind of know the answers already. So perhaps my question is, Matthew's question, what don't we know about Gary Vee? I think that people would be very surprised outside of the people in this room who interact with me of how non-confrontational I actually am in real life. I'm a really tough guy on video and on stage, but in real life, I, on a one-to-one level, I'm incredibly uh, interested in soft solutions. And, and I think that surprises people when they get close. Um, so I think that all of us act different in the room that we're in. And when I have the mic and nobody else does, and they're like, I'm about to go give this speech and 15,000 people are there, whatever it is, like, you know, I have to put on a show to get their attention, to get my message across. That's not what I need to do when I'm sitting down with a, you know, associate creative director who's struggling with her boss or his boss, and I'm trying to find solutions. So. I noticed um, oh, a year or so back, um, uh, Mark Ritson, uh, the, yes. the marketing academic, he tried to pick a a, 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 a fight with you, uh, an intellectual fight. Mm-hmm. Um, his argument, I think one of his arguments was that, 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 that you, you, you didn't know the difference between marketing tactics and marketing strategy. And I think I even tempted you by email to try to get you to swing back. And to your point, you, 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 you weren't running towards the fight. Um, yeah. So you do, you choose your battles. Yeah, I also, you know, I also think that hashing it out online is really the shortcoming of our society today. I have a lot of, I don't know a lot about Mark. That's just the honest truth. But the the limited stuff I know, I have respect for his point of view. Um, And I don't, you know, you, you always have these two camps. You know, anytime Mark or anybody who's a traditionalist or, or whatever it may be um, get into a debate with me inevitably their camp comes in and says, yay, you know, screw that guy, let's get him finally, and my camp comes in, and, you know, and I just, I'm not comfortable in that level of, like, negativity, to be frank, Um, and what I say to him, and I've said to others, is like, hey, let's go out to dinner, if you're so inclined, you know, and I don't know this about Mark, but many people want to debate me because they want the attention, you know, it's like rapping battles, you know, Everybody wants to get into a rap battle with Drake or Kanye. It puts them on the map. Um, so, and I have no context whether that's Mark's agenda or not, but 
without knowing anybody at a human level, my initial intuition always is like, let's go have a meal. And if you really are just in it for the intellectual battle, well, we can have an incredible time for four hours and actually become mates. What Mark has said and others is, let's do a public debate in front of 10,000 people. That shows me the card that people are trying to build off of that, and I don't like that. I'm not scared. Um, I'm just not interested in pandering in low-level psychological, you know, strategies. And so, you know, that's how I see it. And you mentioned that sort of traditional world of marketing. Um, Though, every time Mark comes after me, which happens once in a while, many people jump in and say Mark also goes after very traditional people. I think the guy who wrote the book... Yeah, he challenges Byron Sharp, who wrote How Brands Grow. Well, that's, you know, there was a kid who used to work for me, who now works at Google, who wrote me a 20-page article, in essence, and told me to publish it, where what he debates Sharp for versus what he debates me for is completely opposite, and here are the 100 examples. And I didn't go through it, but I know how smart the kid is. And, and so, and by the way, I don't judge Mark or anybody else for that. He may even ha- carry, you know, listen, I think I carry a lot of contradictory point of views. Um, I'm extremely passionate about the results at the end of the day. And whether those are in the short term or long term, um, that's how I think about the world. And when somebody says that I don't understand strategy, I understand tactics, but has never had a conversation with me, that's making assumptions. And um, you mentioned briefly traditional marketing or traditional marketers. How do you think about people who send you a resume and they have a marketing degree? Would that give them an advantage in getting into your organization, a disadvantage, or wouldn't matter at all? Wouldn't matter at all. You know, it's not an advantage, but, you know, all my pushback on you know, some of the classic education stuff, it's not a disadvantage either. Um, it's a data point. And there are a ton of kids that were terrible at school and suck at being entrepreneurs. Just like there are plenty of people who've gone to great lengths to build out an incredible academic resume who then in the real world perform at a very high level. So I try not to, I, not, I try not to be the opposite version of what I have cynicism towards. And so in that scenario, it would have no um, strength or weakness to it. VaynerMedia, you've you've obviously sort of got a a footprint in in Asia-Pacific, in Singapore. Do you have ambitions for Australia? Yes. And how how might that look? A moment in time. You know, Australia, um, South and Central America, uh, mainly on China, all those places... Australia, all those places will be dots on the board at some point because when I buy businesses and brands, one of the arbitrages I'm most looking forward to is expanding those IPs or brands into other parts of the world. I may find the greatest candy you know, in Korea that I know exactly how to market in Australia, UK, and US. And I want to be able to have that macro infrastructure in case I see it. So the way it will look in the short term or, or in the Vayner X, Vayner Media lens, is somebody comes along and writes a big enough check to make me move quickly to open up shop, so or a client would drive it. A client would drive it, or we would just be ready with enough great executives to expand. Singapore 
was more we were just ready. Los Angeles was a client. So, you know, um, that's how I see it. Okay, another, uh, another question from, and I forget whether this one was from Twitter or from LinkedIn, from, uh, from Lincoln Ether, Easter? Ether, I think. Quality, to, uh, and this is, a, again, mm. a good question mm-hmm. based on your strategy. Quality content or quantity of content? Um, and he asked, you know, why, why spread yourself across so many different platforms? Because you're capable. Like, why did Deion Sanders play football and baseball? Because he was capable, but most people aren't. Um, first of all, quality needs to be debated. Who gets to decide its quality? The creative director? The brand manager? Who? Before a piece of creative sees the day of light, it cannot be decided what kind of quality it is. We need to understand the agenda of the creative. And so, for me, quantity is not debatable. I always tell my team, guys, gals, if you're going to deliver a piece of work three days late that a client was waiting for, that's not a debate. You are three days late. That is not subjective. That's black and white. Once you deliver that work, what she or he thinks of it is completely subjective. And uh, we see a lot of perfection and a lot of politics and a lot of subjectivity, which is just hiding insecurity in this industry. And so... I do not understand how people don't understand that we live in a world of 10 to 15 digital platforms that really control the attention graph of our society. And for us to not be telling stories that are relevant to the 12, 15, 35 different cohorts that we could be speaking to across these five to 15 platforms is leaving something on the table. And I think agencies and startups and organizations need to restructure to be able to be a quantity and quality player in today's world, but a traditional creative department of copywriters and art directors and senior creatives debating work and then pitching two ideas is not built for a 2019 internet world, which is why they push so hard against quantity and and judge it as schizophrenia or not on brand, spray and pray, see what sticks. I see it as marketing for the sake of getting quant and qual feedback to do better marketing. I think we have probably just another minute or two left. So uh, let, me, uh, let, let, let me ask you one, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably get asked a lot. Which are the platforms to watch at the moment? You mentioned TikTok earlier. Is, is, is that the, the, the coming one that you would argue marketers should be looking at right now? For all the marketers that are listening, knowing the makeup of this audience, TikTok is important because just remember what you thought about Instagram and Facebook over the last 15 years. It starts super young, and then over time it ages up. And I do believe that we're in the moment of Instagram's prime. Instagram has become absolutely the prime place, much like Facebook was in 2011. And I think when you're in your deep prime, you're in the beginning stages of being past your prime. And I think that TikTok is the only platform that has that much use at that young of an age that has the potential to mature up and challenge. And so, yes, but we've also already mentioned, I think every single person that's listening to this podcast should start producing content for LinkedIn. Every one of them, every one of them. Gary, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed.